I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. That's Psalm 18, the first two verses, and this is the Living the Word Bible Podcast. I'm Sarah Chris Meyer, talking with women about the Bible and the difference it makes in our lives. Today, my guest is Dr. Kelly Anderson, who wrote a beautiful introduction to the Old Testament in the Living the Word Catholic Women's Bible, as well as portraits of two women of the Word, Ruth and Judith, both in the Old Testament. She is the chair of Sacred Scripture and a trustee also of St. Charles Borromeo Seminary in my hometown, Philadelphia, where she also speaks to local Catholic groups on Scripture and Catholic theology. Kelly, thank you for joining me. Sarah, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. You know, I'm really curious to know about your journey to this place. How did you first get interested in the Bible? Well, what I tell people is I did it for the money. I could either have uh, worked at Wall Street or become a theologian, and it was an easy choice. Did <laughs> <I'll> <laughs> so, that work out for you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, the the path was quite different. So I, as a young person, probably as many people are, I was very intense, but also I, I struggled a lot with interior emptiness. You know, I grew up a mm-hmm. Catholic, and I, I went to church regularly, but I, it was just very difficult for me to break through and have a an intimate relationship with the Lord. And I I threw myself into different things with great uh, ferocity almost, trying to (laughs) find something infinite that would satisfy me, like sports or music, but nothing ever did. And I I, uh, just had this emptiness. And I went to college and I was an English major. And through the reading of the word, I think particularly love poetry. I I was very Mm. struck with love poetry that the, the, the poets were not describing this experience of love. What they were trying to do was get at the essence of love itself. What is this force? What, what is this that, that overcomes me and overwhelms me? And then I began to see that in, in other writings as well. For example, novels. They're not just writing pretty stories, but they're, they're grasping with the meaning of life itself. And that, that really struck me. So I graduated college and I was immediately hired to work at an all boys high school teaching. And I was, uh, this is in the Bronx in New York. And I actually was asked to teach religion instead of English. And I said, okay, I was happy to do that. And the chair of the department suggested that I go to the local school there. Like, so here at St. Charles in Philadelphia, we have a lay program where you went. And likewise in uh, the Archdiocese of New York, they have one at their seminary, St. Joseph's Seminary in Dunwoody. So I, I went there and the first class was on the prophets, and it just mm. blew me away. It was like I had discovered gold, and it was wow. like water just filled my soul reading this. Because I think what I had learned in college, you know, as I said, was, was that, that literature became a medium for something deeper and greater. And I saw in scripture that this was a way that I could touch the infinite, I could access God, and I could do this if I were on the bus or by my bed. I could just pick up the scripture and read. and have access to the Lord. It was like through the words of scripture, it was the most perfect way that I had seen that I could access the infinite. And so because of that profound experience, I decided to dedicate my life to the study of the word of God. Mm. So can you give an example? I mean, what about the prophets really grabbed you? You know, people ask me that and my answer is is (laughs) less than exciting. It was, it was Amos, actually. So we went in chronological Amos. order. And the first one we read was Amos. 
but I guess just the purity of, of his teachings, how he reflected the purity and the holiness of God just astounded mm. me in a way that I saw other writers try to put forward. But I, th- I think what happened was, is the professor actually gave me the tools that I needed to read the scripture because uh-huh. I had tried to read scripture. But, you know, I mean, good luck sitting down and reading Romans or Isaiah. You know, I mean, it made no sense to me. I couldn't figure it out. But with very little background information and some tools and some help, it was like he broke it open. It was like Jesus on the road to Emmaus with the disciples. He broke open the scriptures and their hearts were burning. And once I tasted that, I, I never looked back. So it was, it was uh, Amos. And then throughout the rest of the reading of the prophets, I guess, and I remember reading Jeremiah, when I found your words, I devoured them. They became the joy and happiness of my heart. And I think that summarized what happened for me in that class. Mm. So it, it answered that longing of your heart mm-hmm. and probably also maybe some longings of your mind to be able to understand truth and to understand who God is. Did you find that it also impacted, I don't know, how you lived your life or how you faced different problems and, and things like that? I would say not, not immediately, not, not immediately. No, I, I think that it was almost like finding yourself in the middle of an ocean and, and you're, you don't even know what to do and you're just learning how to swim. And so I think just trying to work my way through the text and understand it and understand the various theories, it, it took a long time, I think, for that, the, the, the messages of the Bible to inform my life profoundly. But later on, what happened is I began to study the scriptures more and more, the overwhelming mercy of God, mm-hmm. I think is what touched me more than anything else. You know, we hear all the time that God is good and God is merciful and God is loving. And, and you hear it and it almost becomes, I don't know, it almost becomes trite, you know, but being able to see how God interacted with the Israelites, how Jesus interacts with the poor and the weak and the vulnerable, it was deeply moving, deeply moving for me. And so I, I grew to uh, come to love God from maybe mm. fearing him to, to loving him. You know, that a, a lot of that picture of God's mercy comes out of the Old Testament, obviously coming to its ultimate fruit in Christ, but he is shown as mercy in the Old Testament. But I remember when I first started leading parish Bible studies, a deacon came to me and he warned me to stay away from the Old Testament and just to stick to the Gospels because that's what people would understand. And I did not do that for a lot of reasons. But I would love to know, you know, how would you answer him? Why should we read that the whole Bible, including the Old Testament? Oh, that saddens me deeply to hear that. That That's very, very sad. I don't think we can understand the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament. The, the Old Testament is the, the great prelude. It's like the New Testament is the great final piece of this orchestra that's come together or this great symphony or play. And if you watch a play and you get the last act, I, yeah, you can figure out what's going on, but you don't know entirely what's happening. You don't know the drama maybe that existed between these characters or, or everything that came before to build into this. And so the New Testament has just allusion after allusion to the Old Testament. It's the scaffolding upon which the New Testament is built. And so we're, we're missing something if we don't know the whole story. Or it's even maybe like reading a mystery novel and finding out who the culprit is, but you don't know that everything that came before. You're missing out on everything. So a deeper understanding of the New Testament, I, I think, comes about through a deep understanding of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you think about it, 
Jesus and the apostles didn't have the New Testament. <laughs> no, that's actually, that's correct. Yes, they you're right. They had the Old Testament and they thought it was amazing mm-hmm. and they read it all the time. And there's a knowledge of God that you get. It's not just history. It really does reveal its revelation. It really does reveal who God is to us. I, I like something that you wrote in your introduction to the Old Testament in the Living the Word Catholic Women's Bible. You said that the Old Testament tells, I'm going to quote you here, the unrestrained, chaotic, and intense love story between God and his people. And I love that because it takes it out of the sort of saccharine, oh, it's about love. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it, it just like any love between two people, you know, it's messy and intense. And how does it help to know that story? Well, if, if you go to Peter's first speech in Acts, so mm-hmm. now, you know, we go through the whole thing of the life and death of Jesus and and the resurrection, his 40 days. And then he goes into, he, he ascends into heaven. The Holy Spirit comes down. What's the first thing Peter does is he preaches. And what does that preaching consist of? He's showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. That's exactly it right there. And so if they don't know the Old Testament, they can't understand what he's even trying to say. And so it's the culmination of the great love story between God and his people. And it is messy and it is chaotic. You see that God sometimes... He gets frustrated with his people and the, and the people, sometimes they want to walk away from God. They want to walk from the, away from the, the, the obligations that comes from a relationship because it's not easy. But chronologically, the last thing written in the Old Testament comes from the Book of Wisdom and it's Wisdom 1921. And after all the centuries of back and forth between God and Israel, the, the writer looks back on, on all of this and says, Lord, you have always been there unfailingly. You glorified your people. And I think that's what matters, right? Is that Israel hung in there. Hmm. And sometimes maybe it was only just a few, just a remnant, but God hung in there too. <laughs> and, and looking back, you know, we can, we, can, we can marvel at that. Like I can imagine people maybe who celebrate a 50th wedding anniversary. And you know what? We're still here. <laughs> and that's almost a miracle <laughs> that we're both still here. And, and that's, that's what he says about God. You, you've always been there unfailingly, you glorified your people. And he's been there to glorify them through their sins, through their wickedness, through their rejection of him, through the building of idols, through the rampant idolatry, through it all, God never left them. He stayed with them. And that I think is an expression of great love. Yeah. And I think about all those parts of the Bible that people have a hard time with. You Mm -hmm. know, there's times when God just strikes everybody dead or, you know, comes across seeing, seeming to be very angry or vindictive, or he, he gets accused of all kinds of things. But part of the way we need to interpret that is by looking at that entire story when we understand how again and again, he reaches down in love and the people turn their backs on him. So what else would you say, though, to people who have trouble reading those dark passages in the Old Testament? So the thing that, that really helped me to understand them, I, I think two things. One is that the Jews who have no, or they, they don't read the New Testament as inspired, read their own writings and come to the conclusion that God's nature is best described by this word hesed, or compassion and mercy and love. So you know, we have this idea of bad God, Old Testament, good God, New Testament. The, the Jews would 
I think would find that highly offensive. God is extremely mm-hmm. good and merciful in the Old Testament. And the other thing is that Jesus in the Gospel of John makes this argument again and again that if you look at me and you can't see what I'm doing as an exact representation of what the Father is doing, then, then you don't know the Father. You don't know the scriptures. And that really struck me. So if I'm reading the Old Testament and I come to the conclusion that God is harsh or irrational, I'm not reading it properly. So how can I read it and come to the understanding that the Jews have? And so I tried to understand how the Jews read their own scriptures. How do they read it and come to the conclusion that God is love? And I began to realize that these texts are often deeply symbolic. So for example, mm-hmm. we, we hear about God's arm in scripture. We hear about it a lot. Well, God doesn't have an arm. He doesn't have a body. That's their way of talking about God's power, his omnipotence. Another one is God's wrath. We hear a lot about the wrath of God. And so we tend to think God is up there stomping around. He forgot to take his meds or something. But for the Jews, the idea of God's wrath is their way of describing God's reaction to sin. And so it's not that God is struggling with anger. It's that God is going to bring about the end of evil. And he's very, very patient. He lets a lot of evil go on. He endures it. But then that when his wrath rises or flares up, that means that, that there has been enough evil and God is going to drive it out. He's going to deal with it. The other thing that helped me was to see other symbolisms that they use. So for example, when you talk about Egypt, well, when you talk about directions in the Old Testament, generally people are said to go out. So-and-so set out for X. And it doesn't matter if he goes north, south, east, or west. He sets out for somewhere. But Egypt is the unique place where you go down. You go down Mm -hmm. to Egypt. There's only one time someone goes down, and it's not to Egypt. So you go down and you go down consistently to Egypt. And again, if you read the text, Egypt seems to be a symbol or a way of speaking about the realm of the dead or even hell. You go Mm -hmm. down there and you're in slavery. You are made to do hard labor. You're tortured. Your men, your infants are put to death. And how do you get out of this realm of the dead? Well, you have to pass through the waters, right? It's the waters that usurp, or I'm sorry, these waters overwhelm the evil forces. And when you leave this realm of the dead, passing through the waters, you wander around a period, fed from heavenly food, fed with heavenly food, and then you enter into the holy land of God, the promised land. And so you see how that's a whole almost blueprint for the Christian life. So when God is battling Pharaoh, we don't want to see God battling just a regular human being, but rather Pharaoh and his magicians, they are the lords of the underworld that God is battling. And so the battle becomes who is going to possess my people? Am I going to turn them over to these lords of of Sheol and let them have their way with my people? Or will I do battle and let my people go, free them so they may come over and be my possession? So when you begin to see that, it's like everything starts to break open. Another just quick example, we get very upset, not, not upset, but very uneasy when we read the book of Joshua, for example. And Joshua, who enters into the land of Canaan, seems to mow these people down, exterminates them. Everybody, the man, women, the child, the dogs, the, the ants, everything goes. <laughs> and, and, and we get very anxious because isn't God supposed to be loving and aren't we not supposed to kill? But again, if you look at how Joshua conquers the land, think about that first battle at Jericho. He marches around Jericho for seven days, carrying the Ark of the Covenant. The land is conquered through liturgy. Never do we see Joshua saying something like, all right, let's, let's shore up the right flank. 
or let's get the bowmen over here, the archers over here. We don't even care about them. We don't even know if there are swordsmen or archers. They don't seem to exist at all in this conquest. The conquest is won through prayer and liturgy and sanctifying oneself. But it's couched in terms of a military battle because the fight for the land, whether it be my own land, myself, or my family, or my people, it is a battle. It's going to be a battle. And we have to be prepared to fight against sin. And sin has to be completely extirpated. It has to be driven out because anytime we compromise with sin, as we see in the books of Joshua and Samuel, boy, it's bad. If we leave that door open a little, it's almost like a poison that enters through the door and it affects and infects everything. And so there can be no compromising with sin. That's the idea of the ban. It has to be completely wiped out. And if we don't do that, then slowly, 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 it's going to grow back like a cancer or a tumor and take over and kill us. Okay. I don't know if that was, uh, if that made sense. Yeah, that's really, really helpful. One of the uh, questions that gets asked often that I've noticed is speaking of Pharaoh, what do we do with the passage where it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart? You know, is God making people evil or what's going on there? Oh, that's a really hard passage. That's a crux interpretum. That's one of those passages which has been, it, it's just very, very difficult to, to figure that one out. I'm, honestly, I'm not sure I have a very good answer for you on that. Normally, what, the, what we do is we say that that's ancient literature. And, and the ancient literature, there's not yet an understanding of what we call primary and secondary causes. Mm-hmm. So, for example, God is a primary cause of everything. But if there's an earthquake, well, we understand that God doesn't cause that earthquake, that that's a secondary cause. And so we can make that distinction. And so probably what's happening is the author is not aware of primary and secondary causes. And so when he sees this, this hardening of Pharaoh's heart, he sees that God must be doing it. That's the only explanation he can, he can really give. Why would someone be so turned away from God? Perhaps the best way we can say that is somehow in God's providence, he allows this, this hardening to happen. Mm-hmm. Later on, St. Paul is going to struggle with this in the letter to the Romans, chapters 9 to 11, the hardening that comes upon Israel. He doesn't say that God causes it, but he says that God allows it for a further and greater good and salvation. Mm-hmm. And so maybe that's that's the best way we can look at that. The problem with my explanation that I gave, though, as you probably are aware, is that it says directly God hardened his heart. It doesn't say it just happened. So that's a that's a very difficult verse. Yeah. Half the times I think it says that he hardened it and half the times Pharaoh hardened it. Yeah. Well, I'd love to know what you think about something that I've thought of. It, it maybe explains the secondary cause idea also, but... If you think of a heart as being made of something, and maybe it, your heart could be made of clay, in which, so so look at God's love, God, God himself, he's like a burning fire. And if you put clay next to a burning fire, it gets hard and dried up and it ultimately cracks and crumbles away. If you put wax near a fire, it melts and softens. And so if my heart... If I have hardened my heart, as Pharaoh did over and over again in the beginning chapters of that, if I've hardened my heart to the point where it's like clay and I'm exposed to God, you know, and God's overtures toward Pharaoh, asking him to let his people go, 
I'm going to harden even more so and crack up in the presence of that flame. And yet, if I have a soft heart that's open, it will melt and soften toward him. And so is the fact that my heart is hardening or softening God's cause? God's the cause. He's the fire. But does it have more to do with that or with what I have chosen to make of my heart? Does yeah. that make sense? Oh, that's beautiful. I really like that. That that actually is very much in accord with, I think, our own experience of maybe family members or people we know who are in, in, in serious sin. When, yeah. when we try to tell them this isn't good, they, they don't say, oh, thank you. I won't do it anymore. <laughs> they get mad, right? They get angry. Yeah, yeah. And God gives these opportunities for us to respond to him by showing mercy to someone. And it's our free will to decide whether or not to do that. Yeah, that's so, right. Yeah. Well, we could probably talk for ages about that. Uh, Kelly, I'd like to ask you about some women of the Bible. But before that, I have a question for any listeners who read the Old Testament. Why do you read it? What do you get out of it? What reason would you give someone to read the Old Testament if they never have? I'm going to post that question soon on Instagram. Uh, so go there and look for our handle at Living the Word Bible. I would love to hear from you. Now, back to you, Kelly. We've been talking about how difficult it can be to read some of the Old Testament stories. And I'm thinking about two that involve women. One being J.L., the, the woman who hammered a tent peg into Sisera's temple, and also Judith, who famously cut off Holofernes' head. How should we read these? They're, they're pretty violent and might be a little disturbing. But especially if we're, you know, trying to be women of God and we're looking to J.L. or Judith as an example, how do we read these stories? Can we go talk about J.L. first? Is that, yes, is that okay? Absolutely. Yeah, because that might help us understand. So as you mentioned, J.L. puts a, a tent peg into the <laughs> general sister as he's sleeping. <laughs> and, and yeah, that sounds to us a little, hmm. But if you look carefully at that story in, in Judges, Cicero was, was a bad guy. And as after he dies, his mother gives this kind of praise. She's, she's waiting for the booty and the slaves to come. And Cicero would have, would have enslaved all the Israelites and he would have robbed them. He would have left them destitute, enslaved, humiliated. And one of the messages that we get in Judges, at least in that section, is that some of the men do not rise up to protect their, their people. But J.L. does. J.L. does. And she shows great courage because by taking out the generals, she essentially is saving her own family, her own people from what would have been a horrifying fate. I mean, probably worse than we could ever imagine is what would have happened to them. And so when we look at her, we see this courage of a woman coming forth and taking out this general that the Israelite men, for whatever reason at that point, did not do. And so it's a, it's a rebuke on the one hand to the lack of courage for the men who are supposed to be protecting the most vulnerable but also that God did raise up this woman so that the vulnerable and the weak among them would not be oppressed and suffer. Okay, so does that make sense? Yes, that, absolutely. And the other thing that we can see with JL too is that the fact that she strikes him on the head, doesn't that make us think of Genesis 3.15? That the woman who will crush the serpent, at least in the, yeah, we see that the woman in the Vulgate is the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And so we see that when, it seems when all else fails, this woman will come forth unexpectedly 
in this moment of great travail and great cowardice and save her people through great courage and great strength, almost a masculine strength. If I can talk that way today, I don't know if we're allowed to do that anymore. But (laughs) anyway, so going to Judith, we have something of a similar situation, don't we? It's like, and, and if you look at Judith, it's like all the forces of evil have come upon this one town, Bethulia. And the word Bethulia means virgin. So this pure daughter of God, this, this city of God. And, and we see again, the, the, the men who should have been fighting are, are cowardly. They lack trust in God. And the root of their cowardice is a lack of trust in God. But Judith, Judith does not have that lack of courage, does she? She goes right into the enemy camp and she takes out the general much in the way that JL does. And she is, I, I think her, her courage in doing this comes from the knowledge that God will help her. And so she's portrayed something like a David, right? Who goes out and fights mm-hmm. the Goliath. But if Judith doesn't do this, what's going to happen? And Holofernes gets his way with the people of Bethulia. We know what's going to happen. The pillaging, the raping, the looting, the murder, the unwanted, unrestrained violence that's going to come upon them. And so she single-handedly enters into the recesses of his tent, which is almost portrayed like his own temple, his own realm. Mm. And he is a symbol of evil itself. This isn't just a mere man, but this is like Pharaoh, right? This is the general of these evil forces that are fighting against God. And she single-handedly then takes down the general and saves her people from what would have been a horrifying fate. So seen in that way, I think it helps understand. I mean, she's not just randomly I don't know, cutting people's heads off for, for pleasure or for joy. That's not Judith's yeah. way, but she's acting as a savior for her people. So talk about how both of those women point forward to the Blessed Mother. That's right. That's right. Yes, very good. So what they do in terms of a war. Now, you see JL. JL is kind of, JL, the story there is a little bit gritty. and But, but Judith is kind of more overlaid with symbolism, right? That Judith seems to be a, a, how do I want to say it? Almost a, a composite of the great figures of Israel. Mm-hmm. So we see in her something of David, something of Miriam, something, something even of Jael. And so the Jews begin to have this understanding of this kind of worldwide rebellion, which will come against their people. And it will be a Jewish woman, almost the uh, one who is a, a composite of the greatest figures coming together who will defeat evil. But the defeat that is wrought by our Blessed Mother is not with a sword taking down the enemy that way, but by her utter submission, right? By accepting, in a sense, the sword that cuts through her heart, mm. right? We remember the, what Simeon tells her, a sword yep. your heart will pierce. And Mary lets that happen. She submits herself totally to the will of God. In other words, she doesn't try to dissuade Jesus from, from following his mission. She accepts, first of all, to have a child. She accepts to live in this strange relationship with Joseph. And having had that child, she lets him go. She lets him go to save the world in the way in which he determines is best by going on a cross. And that must have just shattered her. But she stands under the cross without one word of rebellion to God. She doesn't beg Jesus to come down or to stop, but she, she endures this agony with him. And that's the way she conquers evil. Because here's what evil wants to do, right? It wants to make following God so brutally hard and so difficult that we give into sin, which will give us a temporary respite, right? Mm. A temporary relief. But then unfortunately, it doesn't work because the pain only increases. 
And, and as Jesus is on that cross undergoing enormous temptations, terrible temptations, maybe to reject God or to curse his fellow man or to come down from the cross, he doesn't do it. And so evil is becoming more and more impotent. Mary likewise does the same thing by her refusal or her, maybe not so much refusal to give in to evil, but by her adherence, her total adherence to God. She lets God totally win over her and evil therefore has no power over her. It mm. cannot lead her to do anything that it or he wants her to do. Instead, she resists and that's how the head of the serpent is crushed. That is beautiful. I'm thinking of the description of scripture as the sword of the spirit mm. and also thinking of how Mary is such a great example of somebody who hears the word of God. She hears the word spoken to her by the angel. Uh, there's got to be parts of that that she does not understand, <laughs> doesn't get. And yet she ponders it. She accepts it. She says yes to it. And she allows the word, the living word to actually grow within her and until it becomes Christ. And that's such a metaphor, I guess, for what we do when we receive the word of God, both the word of scripture, the word made flesh, the word in the Eucharist, Jesus into our lives, ponder, meditate, allow him to do his work in us. And I just wonder, you know, you obviously spend a lot of time studying the Bible. Do you also spend a lot of time praying with it? What kind of practice do you have sort of on a, reg on a regular basis to receive God's word personally? Oh, yeah, I should probably pray with it more. <sighs> yeah, I know for at least in, in writing, in writing my dissertation, one, one of the things I did was I would do all the reading. I would study, you know, the Greek, go through all that. And then when all that was done, I would take it into the chapel mm. and I would do what's called Lexio Divina until I could really come to understand it deeply. And I spent many, many hours doing that. And so, yeah, I, I think I, I came to understand that text better. The other thing I've been, I, I, this is a goal I set for myself, which is rarely, rarely done. I try to do an, a holy hour for every class I teach Wow! as a way of offering it up for the students that God's word can come through me. Uh, that almost never has. Sometimes it happens. Sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> but that's the time when I, I try to sit with the word and not not do any technical studies. We're not going to look at what these words mean, or but just sit with it and and what what is the Lord trying to say to me that I can pass on to to the students. You know, as the semester goes on, that gets harder and harder to do. But that that is something that I, I do try to do because if we don't pray. Well, it's, it's, we're just empty words, as Paul says, right? Mm -hmm. We're just a gong that's clanging and we're annoying. And so please stop talking. <laughs> so prayer has to be that which undergirds everything. Well, I can attest from having taken some of your classes that you must do that because... <laughs> that's very <laughs> kind. Thank you. <laughs> your, your love of the Lord definitely comes through in your teaching, which I greatly appreciated. Well, thank you. Thank you. So before we go, can you share a favorite verse with us, something that you do like to pray with and maybe tell us how, how it's been meaningful to you? Yeah, so a scripture that I love very much is um, Psalm 73. It's verse 28. It's the last verse of Psalm 73. And it says, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all thy works. 
And that is, for me, almost what I would like my life to be. Hmm. It's, it's, it's almost like the blueprint, if you will, for my life. So the psalmist, this, this poor fellow in Psalm 73, he, he goes through a terrible, almost excruciating pain because he is following the law. He's trying to follow the law and be faithful. And he's suffering because he's following the law. And he looks around him and all of these evil, wicked people who aren't following the law, they seem to be doing great. And he goes into crisis over this. Who is God? And, and what is the law? And why should I do this? But through this experience that he has of God, he comes to realize how futile and silly is anything except God. It's, it's a waste. And he compares it to, or the evildoers, he compares them to a dream when you awake, because our dreams can seem so real. And we wake up and, oh, maybe we're sweating and our heart's pounding. But then, oh, there's nothing here. And then as the day goes on, we forget. And then after a while, we forget our dreams. We don't even remember them. And he says, that's what evil is going to be like. It seems so powerful now, but there's nothing there. And he comes to the conclusion, it's good to be near God. And I've made the Lord God my refuge. And having come to this, this great experience of who God is, and the awe and the wonder and the joy and happiness that God gives him. He, he wants to tell everybody this. And so I think that that's a good plan for my life, to be near God, make him my refuge, because everything else is passing and fleeting and it doesn't satisfy. It just leaves us so empty and, and just so longing for something. And we've got God. <laughs> we've got everything we need. <laughs> Why are we doing these stupid things that make us so happy? So let me make God my refuge and tell everyone else how wonderful it is to do that. That is a wonderful psalm. And one thing I like about it is that it goes back and forth between the psalmist addressing God directly and then talking to us and telling about what he's doing. And the effect that it has when you pray with it or read it is that it draws you into his prayer, which is such a wonderful effect that the Psalms, praying the Psalms has, is it helps you to learn how to pray. And so I would like to pray that with everyone now. And if you don't mind, I'll start with verse 25 and just kind of draw everybody into what's going on here. So if you're listening, you might even want to pause this and open your Bible to read along, and then you'll have it if you want to continue praying with it afterward, if it's speaking to your heart. So this is Psalm 73. And I'm going to start in verse 25 and read to the end, verse 28. And I'm reading this from the RSV 2CE, Catholic edition. And we pray, come Holy Spirit, open our hearts and our minds to receive your word. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to those who are false to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. And God, it is good to be near you. And I pray that you will help us as we seek to find refuge in you. Give us strength to tell others what you've done and who you are. We thank you for your word, for all of it, Old and New Testament, and for the life and the strength that it brings. 
Open our ears to hear and our hearts to receive and ponder what you say to us in Scripture. Give us grace to love and live your word in our daily lives. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, the living word. Amen. Amen. Mary, Mother of the Word, pray, pray for, for us. us. So, Kelly, thank you for sharing your love of the Word with us and your wisdom, both in this podcast and also in the things that you wrote for the Women's Bible. And I want to mention a commentary series that I know you have contributed to, because for those of you who have questions about how to read the Bible and what it means, there are some really good commentaries out there, Catholic commentaries that can help you in that. And one of the best, I think, is called the Catholic Commentary on Sacred Scripture. And you contributed the volume on James, I understand. Correct. I wonder if you could just say a couple words about what's unique about that series. So there's different presuppositions that the series have, different series have when they approach Scripture. And some of them maybe will do, maybe more look at the historical situation Others might do more a study of the words and what they mean. But what this series does is it approaches the scripture from an unabashedly Catholic point of view. And that might not sound like that's very special, but actually it is because <laughs> many studies of the scriptures don't do that. And sometimes scripture scholars don't believe in God. They don't believe in the divinity of Jesus Christ. But this scripture series um, wants to begin with the presupposition that the church and the church's tradition and scripture are sources of divine revelation and that they're interwoven. And so it's an unabashedly Catholic approach to scripture. So I was very, very happy and honored to be part of that work. So we take for granted what the church teaches and we try to show um, the veracity of the church's teachings in scripture. Uh, it's easy to read for a layperson, and it also includes questions for reflection. It brings in the church's teaching, and I think it's beautifully, beautifully done. So thank you for your work on that. Oh, That's, again, it's the Catholic commentary on sacred scripture. So is there a final word, thought that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Um, just thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And I will pray that through listening to this podcast and the reading of the word, your love for Jesus might grow. Thank you for listening. Amen. So this is Sarah Chris Meyer, and this has been the Living the Word Bible Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll join me every Thursday for conversations with women who love and live God's word. You can also join our Instagram community at Living the Word Bible and look for the question this week asking your opinion on why we should read the Old Testament. I'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to get a copy of the Living the Word Catholic Women's Bible or the brand new companion journal, they're available to you now for a special price, $5 off of each, as well as free shipping. Just go to AveMariaPress.com and use the promo code BiblePodcast. The offer expires at the end of 2023. God bless you as you read His Word. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.